ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Carrying on then with Kashfa Shubuhat from where we left off last week. The last discussion that we mentioned was regarding Ar-Rububiyyah and how the Mushrikun at the time of the Prophet wasallam, they acknowledged Ar-Rububiyyah. And in fact, throughout history, the various people there point of contention, their argument with their prophets and messengers was never over Ar-Rububiyyah. It was never over the fact of acknowledging that Allah is the creator, the provider, the sustainer, the one who gives life and death, the one who controls the universe, the one who disposes of the affairs. That was never the dispute between the prophets and their people. So that's what we discussed last time. And then Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullahu ta'ala goes on to say, فَإِذَا تَحَقَّقْتَ أَنَّهُمْ مُقِرُّونَ بِهَذَا So if you now know and you've now come to this recognition that they acknowledged all of that. You've now come to this recognition, you've come to this realization and understanding that the Mushrikun acknowledged the Rububiyyah of Allah. وَأَنَّهُ لَمْ يُدْخِلْهُمْ فِي التَّوْحِيدِ الَّذِي دَعَتْ إِلَيْهِ الرُّسُولُ وَدَعَاهُمْ إِلَيْهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ And that this acknowledgement of theirs of a rububiyyah did not enter them into the tawheed that the messengers called to and the tawheed that the messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam called them to Arafta anna at-tawheed alladhi jahaduhu huwa tawheed al-ibadah Then you will come to understand that the tawheed that they rejected was the tawheed of al-ibadah Tawheed al-ibadah which is another term for Tawheed Al-Uluhiyyah Tawheed Al-Uluhiyyah Tawheed Al-Ibadah and the definition of that in one line can be said as Singing out Allah in all forms of worship Singing out That is Tawheed Al-Uluhiyyah إفراد الله بأفعال العباد in a nutshell to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions 
our actions meaning our worship our worship upon our tongues upon our limbs from within our hearts all of our worship we single it out sincerely to Allah so tawheed al-uluhiyah in a line succinctly is ifradullahi bi-af'alina to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions whereas al-rububiyah is ifradullahi bi-af'alihi singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in regards to his actions in a line al-rububiyah is to single out Allah in regards to his actions meaning the actions of creation and giving life and death and control and uh, all of those affairs that we've spoken about to single out Allah with those actions whereas al-uluhiyya to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions so the shaykh says if you now realize that they acknowledged al-rububiyyah but that did not enter them into the tawheed that the prophets and messengers called to or the tawheed that the messenger called them to then in that case you will now realize that the tawheed that they rejected was in fact al-uluhiyyah it was in fact Tawheed al-ibadah Al-lazhi yusammihi Al-mushrikuna fi zamanina Al-i'tiqad The Shaykh says that is what the mushrikun call in our time Al-i'tiqad Kama kanu yad'oon Allah laylan wa nahara Thumma minhum man yad'oo al-malaika Li-ajli salahihim wa qurbihim min Allah أو يدعو رجلا صالحا مثل اللات أو نبيا مثل عيسى. so those individuals they used to call upon Allah day and night. the day the مشركون the early مشركون they used to call upon Allah day and night. and there were those from amongst them. who called upon the angels due to their righteousness and due to their closeness to Allah or they called upon righteous people like Allah or a prophet like Isa in the explanation a sheikh Ali sheikh mentions إِذَا تَأَمَّلْتَ مَا مَرَّ من فإذا تحققت وما عطف عليها وأنه ليس توحيد الربوبية كافيا في الدخول في الإسلام وأنه لا بد من ثمرته وهو توحيد الألوهية. that if you ponder over this now carefully and you think then you realize الربوبية is not sufficient for an individual to enter into Islam. Rather, the fruits of that are required. When we talk about the fruits, then you often hear that in the context of knowledge and 
action, you often hear it in the context of gaining knowledge, then acting upon that knowledge. And acting upon the knowledge is the fruits that you reap. The same type of example works here almost identically. Because Tawheed al-Rububiyyah is also identified or explained as what? What type of Tawheed is Tawheed al-Rububiyyah? Sometimes in the books of the scholars, in the olden uh, books of the olden scholars, they sometimes refer to the classification or the explanation of Tawheed in just two categories. It is not al-Rububiyyah, al-Uluhiyyah, al-Asma'u wa-Sifat. In some of the books of the olden scholars, centuries ago, you will find that they talk about Tawheed in two parts only. What two parts do they mention sometimes, separate to these titles of al-Rububiyyah, al-Uluhiyyah, al-Asma'u wa-Sifat? They sometimes refer to the two types of Tawheed, one is the Tawheed which is ilmi, and one is the Tawheed that is amali. The Tawheed whereby what is required is knowledge and understanding. And then a Tawheed whereby what is required is action. So what are the types from the three types that we commonly explain as that fall into the Tawheed ilmi, whereby knowledge and understanding and recognition and belief is required. Al-Rububiyyah and Al-Asma'u wa-Sifat. And then the Tawheed Al-Amali, where the action is required is Al-Uluhiyyah, because that is about singling out Allah with our actions. So sometimes you may see that the Tawheed al-Ilmi and the Tawheed al-Amali. So here, when it talks about the fruits, then they are the Tawheed al-Amali, which is al-Uluhiyyah. So the same type of example, knowledge and then action. And it's the same as the definition given that al-Rububiyyah necessitates al-Uluhiyyah. Because al-Rububiyyah, you have knowledge and understanding and iman in that, then it necessitates the action from you, the fruits from you, to be upon al-Uluhiyyah in singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with your actions. So the Shaykh mentions here, it is a must to have tawheed al-Uluhiyyah, the fruits in order for an individual to have actualized Tawheed. وَأَنَّ التَّوْحِيدَ الَّذِي أَشْرَكُوا فِيهِ وَلَمْ يُخْلِصُوا فِيهِ هُوَ تَوْحِيدُ الْعِبَادَةِ And the Tawheed that the Mushrikun committed their shirk in, it was not a rububiyya per se. The key was the shirk that they committed in Al-Uluhiyyah. The key was the shirk that they committed in regards to Al-Uluhiyyah. 
And some of them they used to call upon the angels because the angels are righteous and they are close to Allah. And so they would seek intercession via them. And some of them would call upon righteous individuals like Allah. And some of them would call upon prophets like Isa, seeking intercession from them in order to gain closeness to Allah as they claimed. So they were different and separated and had a variation in their types of shirk that they committed. It was not just idols and statues that they prostrated to. They committed shirk with many affairs in calling upon the angels, the righteous people, the prophets and messengers, graves, idols, trees, stones, the sun, the moon, all types of affairs. So the Shaykh, he highlights up to this point, the principle to understand is that the rububiyyah was not the key issue with them. It was al-uluhiyyah that they rejected and therefore did not enter into the fold of Islam. Then he says, وَعَرَفْتَ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ قَاتَلَهُمْ عَلَى هَذَا الشِّرْكِ وَدَعَاهُمْ إِلَىٰ إِخْوَاصِ الْعِبَادَةِ لِلَّهِ وَحْدَهِ كَمَا قَالَ تَعَالَىٰ وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا وَكَمَا قَالَ تَعَالَىٰ لَهُ دَعْوَةُ الْحَقِّ وَالَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِهِ لَا يَسْتَجِيبُونَ لَهُمْ بِشَيْءٍ So then you will know now, the Shaykh says, you will understand now that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fought them upon this shirk that they were committing in al-uluhiyya. He fought them upon the basis of this shirk that they were committing in al-uluhiyya. And he called them to the sincerity of worship to Allah alone. Just as Allah mentioned in the Quran, وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا That indeed the masajid, the mosques, they are for Allah. So do not call upon others alongside Allah in them. This of course has the apparent clear understanding and meaning to it, that the worship of Allah is to be done upon sincerity in the mosques, in the houses of Allah, to worship Allah sincerely, not to commit shirk and to call upon others besides Him, just as the people they did over the centuries upon their deviated beliefs, like the Christians, and they placed graves inside of their churches, graves of their uh, priests and their holy men, buried inside of their churches, walk into the church and there is a grave right there at the entrance as you go in. So the Prophet ﷺ warned us against those affairs, warned us regarding the graves and inserting them into the masajid, 
warned us against committing any type of shirk within the masajid and outside of course too, generally. Where the Prophet said, لا تتخذوا قبري عيدا Do not take my grave as an Eid. And what does it mean, do not take my grave as an Eid? Regular visitation. This is one of the meanings of it because Eid in the Arabic language comes from the root word meaning to return something which returns regularly. That's why Eid is known as Eid. Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha because it returns every year. Every year at the end of Ramadan, Eid al-Fitr. Every year in the 10th of the Hijjah, Eid al-Adha. They return repetitively upon the routine every year. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Do not make my grave an Eid. Do not make it a place of constant and scheduled repetitive visitation. And so the Sahaba and the Salaf, living in Medina at the time, those who loved the Messenger ﷺ more than us, they fought with him, they lived with him, and yet they did not used to go regularly to the grave or have fixed schedules after every Jumu'ah, after every Fajr. It was not known from them. There are narrations regarding Umar ibn al-Khattab or Ibn Umar that he only used to go every now and again to the grave of the Prophet ﷺ when coming back from a journey and giving the salam to the Prophet wasallam. So here the narration, the ayah mentions indeed the mosques suffer Allah. So do not associate partners alongside him. There is another tafsir to this ayah. And that other tafsir is... The limbs and the body parts. وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ The masajid are for Allah. Meaning your body parts that you make your sujood with, your body parts, your hands, arms, knees, your body, that you use to prostrate to Allah, that you use to worship Allah, that body, those parts have been given to you to worship only Allah alone. وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ Those body parts of yours are for the worship of Allah. So do not associate alongside Allah partners. And similarly, لَهُ دَعْوَةُ الْحَقِّ وَالَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِهِ لَا يَسْتَجِيبُونَ لَهُمْ بِشَيْءٍ Those whom they call upon, besides Allah, they will not answer them with anything. They will not reply to them. They will not respond to them. And that's why it's mentioned, those who call upon the deceased in the graves, those deceased individuals will never reply to them. They will not respond to them to the day of judgment. And that's why Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentioned, when the mushrikun used to go to the graves of the deceased. And this was centuries ago, Shaykh al-Islam, when they used to go to the graves of the deceased and call upon the dead, making dua to the dead, I have this need and I have that need and help me with this and help me with that. That the spirits of those dead people used to rise up out of the grave and talk to the people. 
these individuals who were there making dua to the dead people, the spirits of those dead people would rise up and speak to the ones making dua. And the ones would then, the, who were making the dua, would make the dua and the spirits would speak to them and they would help them. And maybe the ones making the dua were saying, help us to find something or my son has got lost and, and the spirits would go and help them and do things. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said that had nothing to do with the deceased in their graves whatsoever. Those spirits rising up in the appearance of the actual deceased in the graves were merely from the jinn. The shayateen from the jinn utilizing this opportunity rising up and the people think it's him. Because the spirit comes up in the appearance of that dead Imam or whoever it is that they are going to. It was the shayateen of the jinn misguiding them even further. As for the individual in the grave, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentioned upon this, they did not have a clue what is going on above their grave. They are in the barzakh, in their affair. As for the shayateen of the jinn and these mushrikun calling upon them, and what's going on? Nothing to do with that deceased individual in the grave. So it mentions here, they will not respond to you whatsoever. Allah mentioned in the Quran, in response or as the correct way, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّاعِي إِذَا دَعَانِ that if my servants, they ask you about me, then tell them, I am close. I answer the dua of the one who calls upon me. And so this is what has been mentioned in the religion. Dua is an act of worship. Making dua to Allah is an act of worship. Dua huwa al-ibadah. As the narration mentions, dua it is an act of worship or it is the worship meaning that dua is a tremendous and great act of worship and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers the dua of the one who calls upon him and that's why there are so many different times mentioned in the sunnah where there is more likelihood of your dua to be answered that a person should utilize those opportunities. So for example, yesterday, the day of Friday, mentioned in the sunnah, that there is a virtue to the day of Friday in terms of the dua being answered, that there is a sa'ah on Yawm al-Jumu'ah, where the dua is answered. And when that exact time is on the Friday is differed over, and that's why a Shaykh Al-Fawzan said, perhaps the reason behind that is so that a believer strives the whole of the day. If it was known to you that it is definitely this one hour on the Friday, or that one hour on the Friday, then that person would only strive in that set time. Whereas now it is not definitively known there are differences over it. Some of the scholars mentioning it's the last hour of the Friday before Maghrib. Others saying it is during the time of the Jum'ah as the Imam rises up onto the member. 
various opinions about when that time is so that the servant strives the whole of Friday making his dua. Similarly, in the last third of the night, where it mentions in the hadith mutawatir, that our Lord, Rabbuna yanzilu ila samai dunya ila baqiya thuluthu layl al-akhir, that our Lord descends to the lowest heaven when the last third of the night it remains, and then says, Man yadu'uni fa'astajiba lah, who is calling upon me and I will answer him? Man yastaghfiruni fa'aghfira lah, who is seeking my forgiveness and I will give it to him? Who, man yas'aluni fa'aghfiyah, who is asking me and I will give it to him? Last third of the night, virtuous time for the dua to be answered. Similarly in the sujood, when a person is in prostration, then it mentions in the hadith, أَقْرَبُ مَا يَكُونُ الْعَبْدُ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَهُوَ سَاجِدٌ The closest a person is to his Lord is when he is in prostration. So it is an opportunity for dua. The one who is in prostration, as al-Shaykh al-Ithameen rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, you are down on the ground, your head down right to where the feet of the people are, down as low as you can get your body onto the ground. Yet you are closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that state, than you would be standing high and tall. So it is an opportunity in that prostration. Similarly, when a person finds himself in distress and difficulty, the muqtar, the one who finds himself in distress and difficulty, calling upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during that time of distress and difficulty, then it is a time where the dua is more likely to be answered. Even the kuffar, even the kuffar at the time of distress and difficulty, they call upon Allah and the dua is answered, can be answered. Just like the mushrikun, when they would be out on the ocean, on the sea, and the waves, they came upon them, and their ships and their boats were about to sink, and they were going to drown and die. That they called upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely at that time. Because they knew that their idols cannot save them. They knew that their other deities cannot save them. And so the mushrikun would call upon Allah in that time of iqtirar, distress and urgency. And their dua would be answered. They would be brought back to land safely. But when they were brought back to land safely, then Allah tells us in the Quran, they would go back to committing shirk once again. So here, the shaykh highlights that the Prophet fought against them due to their rejection of al-uluhiyyah and called them to be upon sincerity of worship to Allah alone. Then the Shaykh says, وَتَحَقَّقْتَ 
then you will also now realize anna rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama qatalahum liyakuna ad-du'a'u kulluhu lillah that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fought against them so that the du'a the calling the invocation would be purely to allah that the people would not invoke others besides allah that the people would not make dua and call upon others besides Allah, that they would call upon Allah alone. And so that the slaughtering all of it would be for the sake of Allah. And the vowing, it would be all for Allah alone. And seeking that, aid and assistance from difficulty that it would be all from Allah or in Allah. They fought them so that all of the acts of worship would be purely for the sake of Allah. This highlights to you now the basis of this religion and why this affair of Tawheed is so important. The affair of Tawheed is the basis of Al-Islam. The first pillar of Islam is Shahadatu an la ilaha illallah Tawheed. The first pillar of Iman, Al-Imanu Billah Tawheed. When the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam began his da'wah, all of those years in Mecca, 13 years Tawheed. When you look at the Quran and the chapters that were revealed in Mecca, the Makki chapters, all of them are upon Tawheed and warning against Shirk. And then the chapters of Medina, the Madani chapters, is where you find more of the fiqh types of affairs that we call now. So this is the basis and this is what will distinguish the people of paradise from the people of hellfire on that day, the muwahidun and the mushrikun. وَعَرَفْتَ أَنَّ إِقْرَارَهُمْ بِتَوْحِيدِ الرُّبُوبِيَّةِ لَمْ يُدْخِلْهُمْ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ And you know now then that their acknowledgement of the rububiyyah, it did not enter them into Islam. Them saying that they believe Allah is the creator and the provider and the sustainer and the one who gives life and death and the one who disposes of the affairs and controls the universe. Them saying they believe in all of that did not enter them into Islam. أو الأنبياء أو الأولياء يريدون شفاعتهم والتقرب إلى الله بذلك هو الذي أحل دماءهم وأموالهم. And the fact that they were still directing themselves toward the angels and seeking from them, from the angels. Uh, or from the prophets, or from the righteous individuals, wanting their intercession, 
and wanting closeness to Allah via that, that is what made their blood and their wealth lawful. The shirk that they were committing under the guise or under this justification of theirs that it is only intercession, seeking closeness to Allah with it. We're seeking closeness to Allah. Then that is not a justification that was accepted. So if you understand all of this, Arafta, Hina Ivin, you will now then realize and understand properly Now you will understand what the Tawheed exactly is that the prophets and messengers called their people to and their people refused and rejected. Now you will understand. Meaning now you will understand it is not the affair of Rububiyyah. It is not that the prophets and messengers throughout history were telling their people, you must believe Allah is the creator. You must believe Allah is the provider. You must believe Allah is the one who gives life and death. That wasn't it. The people believed that and they accepted that. Rather, it was the point that now that you believe in all of that, it necessitates from you that you need to then single out your worship to Him alone. And they would not. So now you understand it was regarding Al-Uluhiyya. وَهَذَا التَّوْحِيدِ هُوَ مَعْنَا قَوْلِكَ لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ And this Tawheed, Al-Uluhiyyah, that's the meaning of your testification, La ilaha illallah, that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah. La ma'buda bihaqqin illallah. There is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah. And that's why we mentioned when they say the meaning of La ilaha illallah is there is no God but Allah. That is a deficient explanation. Because by saying there is no God but Allah, it indicates that you're trying to say the rububiyyah, that there's no other creator, there's no other provider. There's nobody else who gives life and death. It's God, just Allah. And that isn't the core of La ilaha illallah. The core of it is that there is no deity or God, as they say, deserving of worship in truth except Allah. As for other so-called gods, as for other false deities, then they exist. The people have millions of deities they have deities all over the place. This one for this and that one for that. And a hundred different deities every day. They exist, but they are all false deities. Just like the Mushrikun had all of these multiple deities to the extent, as Shaykh al mentioned, when they would go on a journey, the Mushrikun, going on a journey somewhere, they wanted to take a God with them. But they searched and there was none available. 
There were no gods available, no statues, no nothing available. So they would get dates, squash the dates together, squash them together to make a shape, like a statue shape. And they would take that and say, this is our God on the journey. But then, if they ran out of food on the journey, they would eat the dates that they made the God out of. They would eat their own God, in other words. This was the state of the mushrikun. So then the shaykh mentions, you now understand the reality of La ilaha illallah, that it's about singling out your worship to Allah alone, not saying that, yes, I believe in Allah, I believe He's the creator, provider, but then you go and make prostration to the graves, then you go and slaughter to the graves, then you go and call upon the dead. You have not actualized, you are not implementing the reality of the meaning of La ilaha illallah in that case. فَإِنَّ الْإِلَاهِ عِنْدَهُمْ هُوَ الَّذِي يُقْصَدُ لِأَجْلِ هَذِهِ الْأُمُورِ As for the mushrikun, then they considered that the God or the deity is the one that you turn to for these affairs, seeking their intercession, seeking closeness to Allah. As far as they were concerned, you turn to the deities for that. That's what they believed and that's what they were upon. You want closeness to Allah, you need the intercession, then you must turn to these others. That was the misguidance. Sawa'an kana malakan aw nabiyan aw Whether it was an angel or a prophet or a righteous one, aw shajaratan aw qabran. Whether it was a tree or a qabr, a grave, aw jinniyan or a jinni. Lam yuridu anna al-ilaha huwa al-khaliq al-raziq al-mudabbir. Fa'innama ya'lamuna, fa'innahum ya'lamuna. أَنَّ ذَلِكَ لِلَّهِ وَحْدَةً وَإِنَّمَا يَعْنُونَ بِالْإِلَاهِ مَا يَعْنِ الْمُشْرِكُونَ فِي زَمَانِنَا بِلَفْظِ السَّيِّدِ So when they, the mushrikun, at the time, talked about their deities, then they were not referring to or indicating or meaning that these deities of theirs can create or give life, or provide, or dispose of the affairs. That's not what they intended in these deities of theirs. That's not what they were claiming or making a case for. That they are creators and sustainers and providers and uh, give life and death and control and dispose. No, that's not what their point was. Their point was, they knew that those affairs of Ar-Rububiyyah are only for Allah. They knew that. They didn't claim that rububiyyah per se to the mushriku, to the uh, uh, idols and deities. Rather, what they claimed with these deities of theirs, with the word ilah for them, is what the mushrikun in our time, the Shaykh is saying a couple of hundred years ago, what the mushrikun in our time called the Sayyid. 
the one that you turn to, the one that you go to his grave, the one that you call upon, the one that you seek the intercession via. And this is something well known and widespread amongst the people. A few years ago, well, a decade, two decades ago, in the early 2000s, there was an incident where a ship sank off the coast of Yemen. And there were Muslims, it was a, an Arab ship or a local ship of that area, and it sank off the coast of Yemen. Some people survived, others drowned. The survivors, when they were saved or they made it back to shore, and the journalists and the newspapers and the, the TV, Arab TV stations were interviewing them. What happened on the ship and how did it sink and tell us and news, news. So when they were interviewing them, they said, yes, you know, it was, it was sinking and chaos and people shouting and screaming. They said, what were people shouting and screaming in those moments, in that chaos? And the ship is sinking. They said, people were saying, Ya Ali, Ya Badawi, Ya Hussein, calling upon them, save us, save us the ship. The survivors, they said, this is what everybody was saying. Ya Ali, Ya Badawi, Ya Abdul Qadir al-Jailani, Ya Hassan, Ya Hussain. All of these things that they were saying, calling upon others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then, فَأَتَاهُمُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَىٰ كَلِمَةِ التَّوْحِيدِ so then the Prophet ﷺ came to them whilst they, the mushrikun, were in this state of darkness, in this state of widespread shirk amongst them, in this jahiliyyah. And the Prophet ﷺ was then sent to them at that time with the kalimatu tawheed, with la ilaha illallah. وَهِيَ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَالْمُرَادُ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْكَلِمَةِ مَعْنَاهَا لَا مُجَرَّدْ لَفْضِهَا And the meaning of this word is the actual intent and understanding behind it. Not just the statement. It is not just about saying لا إله إلا الله and you do not understand it and you do not act upon it. That's why a Shaykh Al-Fawzan said, La ilaha illallah has three aspects to it. One is to say it, of course. The other is to have the understanding and belief and aqeedah upon its meaning and what it is. And the third is to then act upon it. To act upon that statement of La ilaha illallah and to be upon tawheed. So then the Prophet ﷺ was sent to call them to that Tawheed. وَالْكُفَّارُ الْجُهَّالِ يَعْلَمُونَ أَنَّ مُرَادَ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِهَذِهِ الْكَلِمَاتِ هُوَ إِفْرَادُ اللَّهِ بِالتَّعَلُّقِ وَالْكُفْرِ بِمَا يُعْبَدُ مِنْ دُونِهِ وَالْبَرَاءَةُ مِنْهِ When the Prophet ﷺ came to them with this Tawheed, Call them to La ilaha illallah. Those kuffar, the mushrikun, in their excellence in Arabic and understanding, knew exactly what the Prophet ﷺ wanted from them. They understood the meaning of that. 
that He wants us to single out all of our attachment purely to Allah. Our dependence, our trust, our reliance, returning back to purely to Allah. They knew that's what it means. That's what the Prophet ﷺ wants from us in La ilaha illallah. That we detach, detach ourselves from these deities and attach ourselves purely to Allah. And that we must disbelieve in all of that which is worshipped besides Allah and to declare our innocence of it. So when the Prophet ﷺ said to them, قُولُوا لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ تُفْلِحُوا Say لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ And you will be successful. Say لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ And you'll be successful. They knew the meaning of that isn't just to say it. They knew the point behind that is to detach themselves from all of their other deities and return back to Allah alone. They knew that's what it means, that they need to abandon all of their other deities. So when they understood that's what he wants from them, they replied and said, أَجَعَلَ الْآلِهَةَ إِلَهًا وَاحِدًا Is he making all of our gods into just one? He wants us to make all of these, forget them all, into just one god or deity into the worship of Allah alone. That's strange. That's not, that's not right. He wants us to abandon everything and only Allah. Has he made all of these gods into one only? Then this is something that is strange. Um, in another ayah, Allah mentions in the Quran, إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا إِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ When it was said to them, لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Say, لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Be upon, لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ They would be arrogant and haughty, arrogant and haughty, refusing that. وَيَقُولُونَ أَإِنَّا لَتَارِكُوا آلِهَتِنَا لِشَاعِرٍ مَجْنُونَ And they would say, are we going to leave our idols? For this madman poet, are we going to leave our idols for this madman poet? Then the Sheikh goes on, فَإِذَا عَرَفْتَ أَنَّ جُهَالَ الْكُفَّارِ يَعْرِفُونَ ذَلِكَ So if you now understand that the ignorant kuffar, they understood that. They understood what the intent is behind La ilaha illallah. فَالْعَجِبْ مِمَّنْ يَدَّعِ الْإِسْلَامُ وَهُوَ لَا يَعْرِفُ مِنْ تَفْسِيرِ هَذِي الْكَلِمَةِ مَا عَرَفَهُ جُهَّارُ الْكُفَّارِ Then it's amazing the shaykh says how those ascribing to Islam proclaim this testimony and they don't know the meaning of it to the level that even the mushrikun even knew. And that is the point then inshaAllah ta'ala we'll pick up from next time. This is all laying down the foundations. We haven't even got to the doubts yet. This is all laying down the foundation to Tawheed, to understanding the basic principles, so that when the doubts are mentioned, we have a basis to then be able to refute them on. And this is a, a, a simple 
methodology. That's why a person doesn't go into refutations first. You don't go into refutations first before you've understood the basis of your own aqidah and methodology. You can't just read a refutation and understand the refutation upon some misguidance when you don't even know what the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah is yet. So the purpose and the point is the scholars mention you learn the basis first, your own aqidah, the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah. Then when you expand out, you look at the doubts of the innovators and the deviants, and then you are able to understand from the basis you've learned how the refutation works upon those various points. So we'll conclude upon that then. If there's any questions or anything, we can do that up until the prayer, inshallah ta'ala. Hmm. The part where the Sheikh mentions that the Mushrikun in his time called this uh, Tawheed Al-I'tiqad. Well, what does he mean by that? Al-I'tiqad. It was mentioned again alongside with the Sayyid thing as well. All, all of this was that they used to claim their uh, explanation of intercession and their explanation of calling upon Allah or uh, calling upon these deities to seek closeness to Allah, that all of that is not considered as shirk. And that the tawheed that the Prophet ﷺ was calling them to, they were claiming, even though they knew, that this doesn't go against what we're saying. It doesn't go against what we're upon. So the i'tiqad thing, it's just connected to all of that belief of theirs and the actual tawheed that opposes it. The whole paragraph that leads up to that section is the explanation of what the i'tiqad is. All that paragraph that he's talking about, the tawheed and their intercession, etc. That is the explanation of their uh, terminology of i'tiqad upon it. There are certain uh, terms like that. The Shaykh sometimes mentions that they used to say this at his time. Sayyid, for example, and I'tiqad, and there are others in some of the other books. 
some of the terms they used to use at that time. So if people now these days, they implement, they say, you know what, if somebody's disbeliever, we're going to go and fight them. Is that implemented this time as well, or, or like Khawarij? So what, how do we respond to that? What we've done today is a, a, a one-hour lecture, and we've touched upon a particular point of how the Prophet ﷺ fought against those mushrikun. In order to understand these kinds of points, then the principle in, in, the, in the sunnah is to understand a hadith or a point, then you must understand it along with all of the sunnah together. So you don't just take a point as they do. This is the way of the people of innovation. It's mentioned. Ahlu sunnah, take all of the sunnah together and put everything into context and understand how to do and what to implement and how to implement. The people of innovation don't understand that, or they do, but they don't purposely implement it. They take a hadith, an ayah, and they utilize that alone, standalone, to make a point of it. So they'll pick out something like this. They'll say, okay, look, in the lesson we learned that the Prophet ﷺ fought against the mushrikun. So now, let's go. They're everywhere. Let's go fight against them. And that would be complete falsehood. Because in order to understand, you have to understand it all in, in context of the sunnah, how that is done. And we know in the context of the sunnah, those types of things are only done under the imam, under the ruler, under the leadership. It's not for the vigilante, as we say, for a person to go and do this and do that and attack. And that is falsehood. And that's from the way of the khawarij, whereby they take these points isolated and try to make their evidences and their positions based upon it. But when you take their points and put them back in with the rest of the sunnah and the rest of the hadith and the ayat, then it becomes clear that's not how you implement it. Anything else? No, you can't do the dua as the imam is on the mimbar. But there's an opinion about up until the imam finishes from his khutbah or, or prior to the imam just coming up onto the mimbar around about the actual Jumu'ah time. One of the opinions is on and around the Jumu'ah time. So maybe in the actual prayer itself comes into that sa'ah, the prayer for Jumu'ah, making a dua in your sujood, etc., so in and around the actual Jumu'ah time is an opinion. The other famous opinion is the final hour of Friday after Asr before Maghrib. You know, the, uh, touching a private part, for example, there's a different opinion. Can you expand on that like, example? Does it break wudu or not? Okay, if touching the private parts, does it break your wudu or not? So as you mentioned, there are two main opinions about it. If you touch your private parts without any barrier, not like on top of your clothes, but direct contact. If you make direct contact, skin to skin direct contact with your private parts, does it break your wudu or not? There is an opinion of some scholars that it does. And there are some narrations. And there is an opinion of other scholars that it does not. And Allahu Alam, but what appears to be correct is that it doesn't. Because of the narration, mink that the narration mentions, it is just another body part from you. So there is no desire, there is nothing, maybe 
just whatever reason, something changing clothes or whatever, you're some random contact occurs, no desire, no nothing, just the narration says it's just another body part, you touch it, you touch it, you touch there, it doesn't break your wudu. So that appears to be the stronger opinion, Allah alam. Is that fabricated hadith or is it authentic? Which hadith? What is mentioned now, it's part of your body. That's authentic. Uh, that, that narration is mentioned by the scholars. Hmm. It's in the books of fiqh. You'll find it in Kitab al-Tahara. Okay. Anybody else? So the mushrikun, they believed in al-rububiyyah. Then why did they reject al-uluhiyyah? There are many ayat in the Qur'an that talk about their hearts being sealed and their eyes being blinded and their ears being deafened even though they can see and they can hear. This is the affair, the corruption in their hearts. And so their hearts were then sealed to the truth and they were upon that misguidance that they were upon. The Prophet ﷺ came to them with the truth but the corruption that they were upon and the whisperings of the shaitan that they were upon and their hearts inclined to that and uh, all of this, it comes under the topic of the decree because one of the detailed topics of the decree, which inshallah at some point eventually we'll come back to it in Bradford, we're almost there in the series we're doing there, is about guidance. Because a common person may come along and say, well, Allah decreed everything. Why didn't Allah just decree all of us to be Muslims? How come Allah decreed somebody to be a kafir? It's impossible to answer that now. It's impossible to do it without a full lecture, even three or four lectures. But inshallah ta'ala, that's going to be covered at a later stage uh, in Bradford. We're doing that right now. We're going to get to that when eventually, inshallah, lessons start again. We'll have to stop there, then it's the prayer.